Hello and welcome back to High School Not So Much a Musical, a podcast made by high schoolers for high schoolers. Today we're moving to the area of eating disorders and the role they play in a high schooler's life. Thousands of high schoolers are affected by eating disorders annually, but none really know how to seek the help that they need. Our guest today is Jessica Setnick, an eating disorders expert, as well as the author of the books, The Eating Disorder Clinical Pocket Guide and Eating Disorders Bootcamp. We'll take a deep dive into what Jessica calls dysfunctional eating behaviors and their main causes right after this. This is High School Not So Much a Musical, a podcast that takes you on a ride to the peaks and valleys of a high school journey. Here are your presenters, Nitin Jaladanki and Ayush Agarwal. Ms. Atnik, why don't you tell us about your career, your company, understanding nutrition, and some of the talks you've done about eating disorders. So I started my career in 1998 when I became a registered dietitian. I had a bachelor's degree in anthropology and then I got a master's degree in sports nutrition. And those two things made me uniquely positioned to think about eating disorders as something that is affected by both our individual biology, also by our society and by our culture. So. Eating disorders always made sense to me, and I started by working at an eating disorder hospital. I then worked in private practice for a long time, then I became a spokesperson for several eating disorder hospitals, and now I mostly consult with other eating disorder professionals by phone to help them with their challenging situations. Awesome. Uh, So before we get into like the nitty-gritties about you know, what are some of the causes and solutions to eating disorders in high school students? Uh, For the listeners out there, could you define what exactly an eating disorder is and the negative harms it can have? Sure. There's a common misconception that an eating disorder is something very specific and only affects a small number of people. But the truth is anyone who eats can have eating issues. The most basic way of describing An eating disorder is when food and feelings get mixed up. So food becomes a solution to feelings, a way to avoid feelings or, um, or the opposite, not eating food becomes a solution to feelings or a way to avoid feelings. And so to me, I prefer to call eating disorders, dysfunctional eating behaviors, because I think that takes the words eating disorders and sort of that definition that we might have in our mind of a certain specific look of someone who has an eating disorder or what specific eating disorders are, it sort of takes us out of that mindset and takes us into the idea that any eater could be a dysfunctional eater. And it doesn't mean we're dysfunctionally eating all the time because someone can be a healthy, appropriate eater a lot of the time. And yet under certain circumstances or certain situations, their eating and their feelings get mixed up. And so it's a lot easier to me to talk about what I think you're calling eating disorders as eating issues or dysfunctional eating behaviors, because it, it, it's, it takes away that feeling that, for example, you have to be doing X number of behaviors a day or certain types of behaviors to sort of qualify. And you can't see me, so you can't see that I'm using finger quotes to say qualify as having an eating disorder. Really, all of us have some times where we 
probably participate in dysfunctional eating behaviors. The only thing that makes an eating disorder different is perhaps that it becomes more severe or even the, the genetic piece of it where someone isn't able to stop doing the behaviors. In other words, just to give you an example, there's probably a lot of people listening to this that have ever skipped a meal, right? It's, it's not even that big of a deal if you just skip a meal one time, let's say in a five-year period, it, everyone can live through that. But someone with an eating disorder, it might become a pattern, it might become a habit, and even if they wanted to stop, they wouldn't be able to pull out of it. Not because they did anything differently, but because of the way their body responds when they do that same thing that everybody does once in a while. I have a really quick follow-up question to that. And um, being a high schooler, we hear a lot about eating disorders and people calling each other anorexic. So like somebody looks anorexic and stuff like that. So where do you think that this kind of naming came from and how eating disorder became such like a commonly used term? and why more people don't know that it's called a dysfunctional eating behavior or an eating issue. So there's a couple of different pieces of your of your question or a couple of different answers I have. One is, you know, slang is slang and who knows why things happen and who knows why we say anything, why stan means something or, you know, WTF means something, right? So there's a lot of times when we say things that don't really mean what they mean, but we use it in a different meaning. So Someone might say, oh, I'm so ADD or I'm so OCD, and they don't really mean they have a diagnosis of that illness or condition. They just mean something sort of a slang term. And I think a lot of times that's what people are saying when they say someone looks anorexic is they're basically saying that someone looks very thin or even underweight. They're not saying that that person necessarily has that condition or that disorder. But I also think there are times when people are using it as sort of a negative. In, in sort of almost a bullying way. And I think that the main thing I've learned about bullying as an adult that I wish someone had told me when I was younger is that anyone who bullies is not feeling good about themselves. It, it's sort of easy to imagine that someone who's a bully is overconfident and that's why they are sort of condescending or demeaning to others. But the truth is people who are confident and feel good about themselves and good about what's going on in their lives don't need to be demeaning and condescending to others. So sometimes calling someone anorexic might be a way of sort of putting them down, even if you don't say it to their face, but sort of, you know, instead of saying, I, you know, I admire that person because they seem, you know, I don't know, attractively thin or whatever it is that, you know, they're trying to say, they sort of put that down or I'm jealous of that person. They seem like they have things, you know, going on well in their life. It, it's easier to use it as sort of an insult. Oh, they're so anorexic or, oh, they just never eat. You know, and, and it's really inappropriate to use that as a, besides that it's inappropriate to bully anyone or talk that way about people in general, it's really inappropriate to use a mental illness as slang for something negative. And I think we are hopefully learning more about how hurtful bullying and, and labeling and those kind of things are, but people still do it. So I, 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 don't, I don't know if those answer your questions, but I think those are part of it. The, the other part of piece of the puzzle as far as why people aren't, you know, familiar with the terms dysfunctional eating behavior is because that's really a term that I started using when I started teaching about eating disorders probably about 10 years ago because I felt like exactly what I just said to you that, that when, you, when you use the terms eating disorders, you, you have to realize that the people in your audience 
are thinking of a very specific group of people. And so I do a lot of talks at, for example, an eating disorder, I'm sorry, an addiction hospital or addiction treatment facility or something like that. And when I would go in and say, you know, there's a lot of overlap between addictions and eating issues. Um, how many people in your facility do you think have eating disorders? They would have a very specific idea of like, well, we have this one person or this other person and they meet these certain physical characteristics or these behaviors that they do. And if I said, on the other hand, how many people here in your facility have really healthy, appropriate eating habits and really healthy, appropriate emotional coping skills, they would basically say no one, not even the staff. And so that's when I realized that these words eating disorders is really putting people in boxes in a way that is not helpful. And that's when I came up with the terminology dysfunctional eating behaviors to sort of explain that it's not the small minority of people that have eating disorders. It's a potential that any of us could fall into. And part of my anthropology background is linguistics, which is how we use the words that we we use and why we say what we say and why we mean what we mean. And so it's really interesting to me that you ask this question without really knowing that. But that's when I decided to be more specific about the words I use because I want to convey something different than the idea that people already have in their mind. Yeah, and I completely agree, specifically on your second point there, right? You were talking about uh, how people can be jealous of others and then they use the term eating disorder as kind of an insult. So there's actually a, t a TV show that came out that's pretty popular among teenagers. It's called Never Have I Ever. And season two recently came out where uh, there is this girl named Davy. She's a sophomore or junior in high school. I can't exactly remember, but she actually sp spreads a rumor about her own friend having an eating disorder uh, because she's jealous of her friend. And that friend had actually just transferred from another high school the reason she had to transfer is because at her old high school she was bugged and terrorized so much about her eating disorder and now at her new high school where she thought she was safe with her friend Davy, she actually ended up having that same issue so it can end up being a, a, a type of jealousy problem and and i think that's actually a perfect segment into a segue into our next topic about high schoolers right because um, eating disorders and body dysmorphia, or sorry, dysfunctional eating behaviors and body dysmorphia, those can be very common among high schoolers. So I wanted to ask you, um, what do you think are some of the root causes of uh, dysfunctional eating behaviors and body dysmorphia around high school students? Because uh, I know that social media and peer pressure are a pretty big influence on that. Sure. So I'm going to kind of paint you a picture. If you think about four columns going across a page. I think of this as four different paths to developing dysfunctional eating behaviors. There are biological causes in the, the far left column, and that could be anything from depression, which affects eating, anxiety, which affects eating, obsessive compulsive disorder, which affects eating, autism spectrum disorder, which affects eating. That includes having a concussion, which can affect your eating. It includes having diabetes or celiac disease. There's so many different physiological or physical things that can affect someone's eating that can then lead to dysfunctional eating behavior. So there's one factor that is not necessarily special to teens, right? But teens definitely have all of those things in that column. Then in our second column, let's put addictions and substance abuse. 
And that can cause dysfunctional eating behaviors too. If you're taking a substance that dampens your appetite or a substance using a substance that increases your appetite. Um, if you have been taking diet pills or another kind of substance on purpose to change your eating or your weight, appetite suppressants, let's say, addictions and substance abuse can definitely lead to dysfunctional eating behaviors as well. In the third column, let's put stress and traumatic events. So again, um, oh, I didn't say this about the second column, but certainly there's substance abuse going on among teenagers and in high school. In the third column, stress and traumatic events, which again, very common um, in high school. High school is an incredibly stressful situation to be in as far as the pressure to succeed, the pressure to get grades, the pressure to get into college, but also the environment itself, which is so stressful as far as making friends and not even to mention all the ways, and it sounds so corny that I can't even believe these words are coming out of my mouth, but but your growth and development and the way your bodies are changing and relationships and things like that. I mean, you can grow six inches in, in a year. Things that are changing about your body, plus things that are changing about relationships and friends and all those things can be very stressful. And then in addition, there's traumatic events in this column, which could be anything from a community-wide traumatic event. If there's a natural disaster, I know in your area, not too far from you, there's some major fires right now. It can also include something like COVID-19 or you know something that's happening to all of us, but it can also include things that happen to an individual like bullying or like some kind of loss a death in the family or some kind of disruption in your family, even something that in theory you might think of as a good thing, but is still stressful. So for example, let's say your older sibling leaves for college and that's a good thing. That's what's supposed to happen in their life, but it still can be a traumatic event for you because it feels like you're losing your sibling's company and, and that relationship that you've had all this time in your life. So stress and traumatic events can affect someone's eating for some people they cause you know someone to want to eat less for sometimes they cause someone to want to eat more any kind of bullying or teasing related to bodies and weight can make someone want to go on a diet or lose weight anything that feels like rejection um you know there's so many examples i i don't think i need to share any with you because i'm sure you each can think of your own but any kind of disappointment you know not getting the grades or not getting to be homecoming king or you know anything not making the tennis team there's so many stressful things about being a teen and being in high school and any of those things do affect you chemically we never think about stress as being a mood altering chemical but it is and Food is a mood altering chemical too, and even not eating is a mood altering chemical. So the things that people do with their food to make them feel better, we would call that dysfunctional eating behavior, but it's not always rooted in food. A lot of times it's rooted in stress or in a, a traumatic event. And then in the fourth column of paths to things that could cause dysfunctional eating behavior is something that's learned, sort of society, um, messages that you get about what body sizes or shapes are, are attractive or acceptable. Um, anything that has to do with what's okay to eat, what's not okay to eat, those kind of messages. And that's where social media comes in so much because there's no, no fact checking on social media. If someone says that, you know, 
the best way to be healthy is to stand on your head while you eat breakfast. There's no one fact checking that to say that's ridiculous and that should not be done. I mean, you might have common sense and think, oh, well, I'm, I'm not going to do that. That's ridiculous. But there's also lots of people who are going to think, oh, well, I'll just do that because so-and-so said it and I admire them. I mean, the idea of putting butter in your coffee, whoever came up with that, I mean, I'm sure the first dietitian that saw that was like, no one's ever going to believe this. And yet there's people who totally do that every day because they saw it somewhere on social media. So social media can influence what we think is a good idea. It can also influence the, the size and shape and look of certain bodies that we are sort of conditioned to believe are acceptable or lovable, even though that there is no such thing. And then on top of that, you've got your influencers, your filters, all kinds of things that sort of ensure that we're not actually even seeing reality on social media. Um, one of my dietitian colleagues said something like, you know, don't compare your, your bloopers to someone else's highlight reel, something like that, where, you know, saying that basically people put their best face forward or their best picture or whatever on social media and really everyone has good days and bad days everyone has you know successes and failures but most people tend to put a very curated image of themselves online and so it's really easy to compare yourself and feel like you're not good enough and not measuring up and in our society one of those learned behaviors that we have is that when you're not feeling good about yourself change the way you eat or the way you look in order to feel better and it doesn't actually work, but it's so pervasive and that message is so out there that social media can have that indirect effect. So the direct effect of actually giving out bad information and then the indirect effect of making people not feel good about themselves, which makes them want to change their eating or their body. So that was a long answer to your question, but I think there are a lot of different things that put high school students at risk of developing dysfunctional eating behaviors because again, you might try something thinking it's no big deal, but depending on what your specific situation is, it could become a pattern that you find very hard to stop. So I appreciate what you said about the fourth column and specifically I wanna focus on that. And you said that okay. there's like this ideal body type, which is pervaded through social media and influencers and stuff like that. And uh, this leads me to another point, which is you said that high schoolers go through a lot of stress. And I know that Ayush and I, can give you like a first-hand experience that May is our AP season, which is like an advanced placement program. So it's a college mm -hmm. level test. And during those, I would say March, April, and May are really, really busy months where we're just preparing for those tests. And this year specifically, because I was taking around five AP tests, I found myself staying up a lot later and eating a lot more, even though it was maybe only one to two hours later than I was. Do you think that that is a dysfunctional eating disorder, because uh, eating behavior? And do you think that this is something that's just not given enough attention? Because when people eat too much, they kind of just blame it on stress or something like that. But in the end, is it still an eating issue if it continues on for long periods of time? Absolutely. And I think it's normal for eating to change just like it's normal for bodies to change and sometimes it changes back and sometimes it doesn't so you potentially have gained weight during ap season and then decided well now i need to lose weight that since ap season is over but that can actually send you on a sort of up and down yo-yo spiral for the rest of your life of gaining and losing the same five or ten pounds and that's actually much less healthy than just weighing a little bit more um or until it just sort of naturally you know 
evens out with your growth. What I think is a really important message to take from it is not necessarily that I gained some weight, so I need to lose some weight, but instead, when I'm under stress, sometimes I turn to food. And that's the thing that you could actually investigate that would change your life for the better for the rest of your life. So if you knew that information, when I get stressed, it seems I turn, turn to food. And that's what I found out through AP exams, exam period, when I ended up gaining some weight during that three month period, I learned that about myself. And so I wanna make sure I have better ways or different ways of handling stress because stress is going to come up other times in my life. And I don't wanna gain five or 10 or seven pounds every time I have stress. In other words, that one incident may not be the biggest issue. The bigger issue might be how is stress affecting my eating and how do I want to handle my stress instead of turning to food? Because like I said, you know, stress saps out your good brain chemicals and the things that replenish your brain chemicals are, you know, drugs and food and not eating and exercise, including excessive exercise and some destructive behaviors that I won't mention. Um, Self-harm is something that I will mention that changes brain chemistry. So, you know, you're basically medicating yourself through food for your stress and there are some much better options for how to handle that stress. It, it's not the the food that you're eating that's the issue. It's that it's the the stress level. What what is maybe missing as far as stress coping skills? And then there's one more thing which could be a factor, and I don't know if it's a factor or not. But I know that people sometimes do make it seem like you should stop eating at a certain time and if you're still studying long into the night you probably do need to eat but most people don't think of it as like i need to eat a turkey sandwich i need to get another snack most people in the night are going to turn to snack foods and things like that because they already feel like they shouldn't be eating it's kind of sneaky or something like that or i'm feeling bad you know so i deserve a treat type of thing and i'm not saying that there's any food that you shouldn't eat during the night i'm just saying I think if people thought of it as more legitimate to eat, if you're awake in the nighttime, then you need to eat. Then I think people might make, you know, different choices about what and how much they choose to eat if they weren't feeling like it was quite so sneaky or wrong. This leads us perfectly into like my last topic and question as a whole. And um, so high schoolers, I don't think that they find it very easy to approach their parents or adults for a lot of things because they believe that there's just so much stress and pressure on them that they're just worried about their schoolwork. So for someone struggling with an eating disorder or body dysmorphia, what advice would you give them to not be shy or insecure about it and talk to an adult about this issue? And for our high school students out there, what do you think are some of the ways that they can recover from an eating disorder while still keeping up to date with their schoolwork and making sure that they keep a good social standing? Right. Well, okay, so that's kind of two very big questions. And one, I will say, sort of, I'll answer the second one first, which is that there's no, no reason why, you know, getting help should have to just completely disrupt your life where, you know, it's so unfortunate that, you know, the um never have i ever show is making it like this I, I mean i know this show is just reflecting what is in our culture but but like the idea that you know having an eating issue is like something that people should talk about or do talk about behind your back i mean that i'm sure that's true but but we should be admiring someone who is willing to you know recognize that they have a problem and get help for it 
And I just feel like that's not exclusive to teenagers at all. That's our society that often I hear people say, well, you should just buck up and solve the problem, or you should just pray your way out of it, or you're being too sensitive. And I don't think that helps anybody. If you are sensitive, being told you're too sensitive doesn't help. And, you know, if you're feeling not good about yourself, being told that everything's fine does not help you feel better. So I think that number, the, the second part of your question is just simply that, you know, we need as a society to really change our way of thinking about the fact that we all get into slumps and we all need support for that. To answer the first part of your question, I would say that it is very important to get an adult involved, but it doesn't have to be a parent at first. You said your when you started your question, you said someone who doesn't want to talk to their parents about it, but then at the end of your question, you said they don't want to talk to an adult about it. And I want to make the distinction that there's lots of adults in your life who are not your parents. And I think it's just a matter of finding whichever adult feels the safest and most accepting to you. I know that for me, you know, my niece um, has a lot of friends who are, um, you know, identify as non-binary or, um, you know, other differences, let's say, that maybe their parents don't really understand or they believe their parents don't understand or maybe their parents have outright sort of rejected those parts of their identity. And I feel like, I mean, I always respond to her Instagram post privately and just say, if you have a friend in this situation, you know, you can always bring them to me. And I hope that everyone knows someone, you know, whether it's a friend's parent or whether it's a counselor at school or a teacher that you feel safe with that you could trust, but please try to find some adult that could just be a starting point for you. And all you have to say is, I think I have a problem that I don't know how to solve. And you sort of make it that adult's job to help you figure out how to solve it. In other words, you don't have to think of it as, I'm going to talk to this adult who's going to have the answer. You just have to open that door because adults, rightly or wrongly, have so many more resources available to us. And on top of that, we also are not as emotionally sort of involved, which might be true about some of your friends that even aren't adults. I mean, if you really don't know an adult that you feel like you could approach, then go to a friend and say, you know, listen, I have a problem I don't know how to solve. I've noticed that I've started throwing up after I eat, or I've noticed that I've started, you know, hurting myself and just say, can you try to help me figure out what to do? Maybe your friend has a trusted adult in their life that they could talk to, or maybe they have a different relationship with their parents than you do with your parents. It's always easier when it's not you, right? That's why people are like, oh, I have a friend with a problem. And you're like, oh, sure, a friend. But sometimes people really do have a friend with a problem. And so I guess the very most important thing is to not keep it inside. And that might even mean finding a support group online um, where, you know, if you really, I mean, I, I'm not a fan of secrets. I, I don't think that keeping secrets is usually the best way to approach things, but I also want to respect that some people do not live in a loving family and um that's just a fact and i hate that fact but if you really feel like you've tried to get help for an issue with the adults that, that you have available to you try an online support group try looking for articles online not influencers but actual reputable websites that have information that you could potentially learn from not like a Reddit group where people are, you know, encouraging you to do unhealthy behaviors, but 
but actual support groups, actual educational sites where you can get information. And, and ideally, the more information you have, even though information may not necessarily solve your problem, the more information you can bring to that trusted adult and say, this is what I think I'm having a problem with, that can also help you express yourself. Um, recognizing that there's enough people who have this similar problem, that there's a whole support group for it, or there's a whole online forum for it, can help you not feel as alone. It doesn't solve the problem, but it at least gets you started into feeling not quite as ashamed that you're sort of irrevocably broken in a unique way that no one on earth has ever experienced before. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Ms. Sednik. We got some great discussions and knowledge out of this podcast. Just to sum it up for our listeners, as Ms. Setnik said, don't be afraid to contact an adult if you think you might have some sort of dysfunctional eating behavior because it is very common. Make sure to find some support groups online and do your own research. Just for a small last piece of information, if you feel that you need immediate help, the National Eating Disorders Association has a hotline which you, you can call to just talk to a representative about how you are feeling. Having someone to talk about these issues is super important and a big step towards rehabilitation. Make sure you subscribe to our channel at High School Not So Much Musical and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this episode. Watch out for future episodes where we speak with an experienced college counselor on how college essays work, as well as a teacher rated top 1% in Texas about teaching during COVID. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of High School Not So Much A Musical. And a big thank you to Jessica Setnick once again. That's our show for today. Now roll the credits. High School Not So Much A Musical is hosted by Ayush Agarwal and Nitin Jaladanki. Narration by Samhit Padala. Music from Louis Luang Relaxation Cafe, Tune Pocket, and Infraction. If you like this show, please recommend it to your friends and family. Thank you for listening and see you next time.